1: Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to elders past and present. The Hotline is proud to be an ongoing supporter of JIRA, an Aboriginal-controlled community organisation where culture is shared and celebrated. This land always was, and always will be Aboriginal, and Black Lives Matter. Big Sister Hotline, how can we help? Hello dear listeners, guys, gals and non-binary pals. You're listening to The Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast offering frank, funny and feminist advice on life, love and whether or not you should break up with your no-good Nick boyfriend. If you are a regular long-time listener of this show, you will know by now that the answer is always yes. My guest this week barely needs an introduction, but I'm going to give her one anyway. She's a journalist and former editor co-host of the popular weekly pop culture and current affairs podcast, The High Low, a fashion icon, terrifically clever, and author of the brand new book, How Do We Know We're Doing It Right? Essays on Modern Life. I'm absolutely thrilled to have her on the hotline this week. I loved this book. It made me feel simultaneously seen, and yet also like I was having the filth read out of me. She is Pandora Sykes. Pandora, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I uh,
1: loved this book, by the way, Um, and I said in my introduction that I felt simultaneously seen by it and also as if you were reading me to filth because so much of it... It is an uncomfortable process when you realise that, uh, you know, like in your chapters, um, get the look. I participate in fast fashion all the time and I know that one of the reasons why I do it is because it gives me the sense of I can craft a life that I want and that is obviously something that women feel an absence of control over in their lives generally. But also when I was reading your chapter on wellness, it was confronting for me because I can logically break it down as you do and I can read the arguments that you make and go, of course, it's of course, it's just consumerist, capitalist, um, an impulse to try and keep selling us things, but I'm so susceptible to it. How can I be a smart woman who understands all of this and yet still see an ad on Facebook for, I don't know, an enema tablet or something and go, oh, I might get, might, might get some of those to clear the old back
0: passage out. Well, you're definitely not alone. And I am susceptible as well, despite writing the book and despite, as you say, being able to go through that very rational process of knowing how you're being marketed to. It's very hard to resist that because we are... We're inured to consumerism now. And also it gets cleverer and cleverer. It's, you know, it's a really important part of mm. capitalism. So this idea that just because we know the cynical reasons for something happening or that it might be built around the kind of model of profitability doesn't mean you can resist it. This idea of choice becomes much more complicated, whether that's choice in fashion or choice in feminism, you know, Mm. the whole knotty thing of choice feminism. Um, And the whole book is about that, really, how we have more choices as women than we've ever had before. But those choices begin to feel like obligations so that you're not just making one choice. You're kind of feeling like you need to do 10 things at the same time while sort of knowing Mm. that you have more autonomy than it feels like you do. Mm. Well, this is the great trick that
1: choice feminism plays on us, isn't it? And how feminism as an entity has been co-opted by capitalist consumerist ideals in order to sell us quote-unquote girl power. Uh, And I I don't know how you feel. I'd be interested to know the frustration with... Having a complicated and meaningful liberation movement like feminism, which to me, my personal view is that it's a movement that advocates to liberate us from patriarchal oppression, having that packaged back to us as this idea that somehow just by virtue of having a choice and making a choice as opposed to making a decision, which is so often what it actually is, it's making a decision, that this is somehow... uh, it, it It leaves those sticky choices that we make almost uh, unimpeachable because apparently questioning any choices is an attack on women, which is exactly what the system wants us to do to each other. I mean, it wants us to attack each other anyway because that's how it sells us things, but it wants us to attack each other further for having the audacity to make choices within it.
0: I don't think that every choice or decision that a woman makes, except for maybe a very small minority can always be Mm. feminist. And that's okay. But the fact that we feel like everything we need, everything we do needs to now come under a guise of feminism is what's leading to that kind of commodification of feminism. Like, do this because it's feminist. Mm. And it's also adding a massive pressure. If women are only allowed to make decisions that are feminist, then not only are they going to try and bend things into what they feel is a feminist package, but they're going to feel guilty about every single... We'll look at the success of The Guilty Feminist, the, the, feminist, the podcast by mm. Deborah Francis White, is instead of feeling like, okay, this is a really important movement that I should be as active and constructive in as possible, but I'm probably not going to help every single minute of every single day like that would be a much more practical way of us approaching it rather than I have to buy this T-shirt because it's feminist and I have to, you know, you've seen it now, you see it with charities actually as well, like you have to donate to this charity because it's feminist. Well, not everyone's in a position where they can donate, mm-hmm. donate money at that time. Mm-hmm. Kind of glossy feminism is also very expensive. So it is tied up in, it's like wellness, it's tied up in quite an uncomfortable privilege we are not great maybe at seeing feminism as something that's not just about us it's about how is it impacting other Mm. women that's where the choice thing is quite difficult and that's certainly when I was writing the book something I wanted to think about is that practicing this form of self-care or buying this dress might make you feel like a badass independent woman looking after herself and putting her needs first but what What is the impact on that? How is that changing the culture around fast and fast fashion? And I don't even just mean ethically, which we know is appalling. I mean, how is that making other women feel? And with wellness, when we're focusing on our own individual self-care, how is that distracting from the systemic and social issues that wellness was actually designed to alleviate? In the 1960s, it was a social movement. It wasn't an individual one. I think we have probably gone off from the question there. Sorry, about that. That's
1: all right. I'm a big fan of deviating down little rabbit holes. <sighs> it's interesting about the wellness industry as well because, as you point out in and the wellness chapter, it's the first chapter of the book, and as you point out in there, it's to be that well and to be that focused on your self-care is an enormous reflection of someone's privilege. To be mm-hmm. able to eat and all of these kind of um, – the pretense that is put into self-care, you know, and for listeners I'm putting air quotes around everything, to self-care and wellness and all, of the, all that that covers up in terms of orthorexia and uh, disordered eating and disordered thinking and practice is still this idea that, you know, if you're a poor person, you can't afford to eat organic food in the same way that someone who's who's that wealthy can make these choices. And I don't know if you read um, the Vanity Fair piece a few – I think it came out last year. It was about the Byron Bay mums, the Byron Bay Um, surfer um. mums. Um, I mean, it was sort of – I felt almost a little bit guilty for enjoying it so much because there was a lot of shade in it, but I also know what Byron Bay is like, so I did enjoy it quite a lot. (laughs) Um, But I remember thinking when I was looking at that article and they were profiling one of these women's houses – It costs a lot of money to be able to live that minimally. That it's an expensive reflection of how much choice you do or do not have but how much money you have to devote to these things that you can, as you sort of depicted, you know, the book opens with you in Tulum, watch these people drinking their kale juices by day and then snorting a ton of cocaine at night and this somehow mitigates the, the... the green juice mitigates every other choice that they make in their life because they're really devoted to their self-care and their, their wellness.
0: I think it's – I'm always a bit cautious when I am kind of talking or writing about these trends is, as, as you say, reading that um, Vanity Fair piece a bit, is a little bit uncomfortable because I don't love pinning everything on one mm. person or a couple of people just because we – have seen that happen with women for so long. You know, this this woman is the embodiment of everything that is awful, let us tear her down. And we see it happening all the time still. It's absolutely what we see happening with Meghan Markle. Mm. You know, for a period of time, it was what we saw happening with Taylor Swift. There will always be women in the public eye who suddenly become synonymous with all that is rotting modern society. Um, so it wasn't... it truly wasn't and isn't inspired by one single woman. Similarly, when I was writing about the fast and Fast Fashion, I had a few friends be like being like, uh, I think this is written about me. And I said, if you think that's written about you, that might be something for you to work on. <laughs> I you know, maybe I'm glad you felt seen, but it absolutely wasn't written about someone. I I try really difficult. I, I try really um hard not to land that at one person's mm. door but I think it's it's as Amanda Mull put it you know that the wellest um, that wellness is for the wellest among us and I you know I'm in a very privileged position where I live in a lovely house and I can afford to buy things to make my day easier so I'm absolutely not throwing shade at people who aren't you know living a precarious lifestyle at all. I'm not I'm not shooting down at anyone. What I want us all to understand is that those of us who are in a position to make those choices or to alleviate our life in some way, that is just not accessible by the vast majority. And what really worries me is we're seeing with a lot of these trends them being sort of marketed and talked about as if they are accessible to everyone. Mm. You know, I say in the book that while I was writing about wellness, a new podcast arrived a press release for a new podcast arrived in my inbox about why bread is bad for us and I spoke to my best friend who's a dietitian at a um, leading hospital in London for dietetics and she said that's just not true the vast majority of people can stomach bread this is just more pseudoscience and it's really dangerous because bread is a staple part for many households on really low budgets and that's the same kind of argument that we see happening with cow's milk you know, oh, we can't tolerate cow's milk anymore. And I feel quite bad because I think I'm probably feeding into that because I love the taste of oat milk in my coffee. And oat milk's really expensive. But the more of us that drink oat milk in our coffee, the more that newspapers and radio stations and shops think, oh, no one's drinking cow's milk anymore. And the awful truth that many of us are part and parcel of is we're just making it harder and harder for people who are financially precarious to be able to make their decisions without hardship or shame because so much public policy is made around the lives of middle class people and we saw that with this prospective ban about eating food on public transport that was that was mooted by public health england but for a lot of families eating on public transport might be the only time they have together someone right you know someone working a long shift like pick up their child from their childcare before dropping them at the next bit of childcare so the other parent can pick them up later. So eating together on a bus might be the only time they have together that day. So that is obviously not my life and that's not the life of a lot of people reading the book, but we absolutely, obviously, need to be aware of how other people are making their choices and how our choices might make theirs more difficult or more fraught in a situation that's already quite difficult and fraught.
1: Mm. It reminds me of uh, some of the arguments that have been made in response to the shaming of eating junk food for example uh, mm-hmm. one of the things that you mention in your book as well is the the way in which the wellness industry particularly when it comes to food and dietary choices feeds into and the way that we talk about it as well feeds into this uh, the connection between or the the fake connection between what we put into our mouth and what our moral our set of moral values are. So middle-class people obviously are able to make those financial choices in a way that you've just outlined where, you know, we can pride ourselves on the morals that come not from just not just from eating healthy organic food for ourselves but on feeding those things to our children, that we're making moral choices about the food that we give to the vulnerable, vulnerable people in our lives who we love. And, of course, that is used then to shame poorer people for whom those items may be out of reach or certainly out of reach on a more regular basis. But also, as I said about the junk food, it reminds me of that that shaming that occurs when it's assumed that if you see a family eating McDonald's together, for example, that within this moral set of guidelines that that they've made a bad choice as opposed to in a... In a system that is set up against poor people, this can sometimes be a treat. This is a way that, you know, as you said, they eat together, they can eat together and have something that is that we are all designed to want and to crave, and yet people will make moral judgments on who gets to have those things. in the same way that you know uh, if you're talking about funding homelessness initiatives or funding charities that assist people on low incomes, that there is that there will always be middle-class people whose expenditure is never scrutinised who think that in exchange for that assistance, we need to be able to see exactly what they're spending their money on.
0: Totally. And I think that the way that we see these things, depending on the person consuming them, is really, really worrying. So a woman who is... Thin and groomed, enjoying a burger. Like, look at all those adverts. What's yeah. that advert in the US where there's always a model? I don't think they do them anymore. It's a burger chamber that we don't have in the UK, so I can't remember what it's called. But they they always had a model in a bikini eating a big burger. And that's, you know, that's kind of sexy. That's considered yeah. a bit renegade. And I have seen that with my own eating choices before. Is it's not something I'm proud of, but when I'm in a hurry, I won't necessarily cook myself a nutritious meal I might eat a big chocolate bar and I've witnessed people before almost thinking that that's a bit like cool and cute Mm. you know like a slim girl eating a big bar of chocolate instead of a salad like how radical so wacky yeah exactly whereas if I was um overweight or if I was and or if I was very poor you know that would be something of despicable like look at those choices they're making they're making an already shitty situation worse for themselves and it happens across the grid a friend of mine she wrote a brilliant book called jailbirds about working in a female prison she noted that her mother was an artist and was very um socially quite unusual in her in her behaviors could make other people feel quite awkward and she said that her mother got away with it because she was middle class and she was mm-hmm. an artist, but that the women that she looked after in prison who behaved like that were trouble. They were rude. You couldn't read them. You had to, you know, you had to be careful. Clearly, there were some social issues going on there. So even the way in which Grant Kate Moss glamorous for smoking, you know, mm-hmm. like even the even the way that we're looking at things just on a day-to-day level, they are analysed through the person consuming them as to whether or not we find them um, kind of cute and individual and creative and radical or whether or not we just find them um, disgusting. And I'm not saying everyone thinks like that, of course, and you might not even realise that you are doing some things, but it is really fascinating to me, the way in which these things are enjoyed so differently from people. Like, I think Mm. McDonald's is a treat. I know it's not the best food for you, but I think it's a really amazingly fun thing to go do with two young kids once in a while. Mm. But it's so interesting how even the act of going to McDonald's, a completely legal foodstuff, is now so loaded. No, of course you shouldn't eat it every day. Of course, there are more sustainable ways of eating. But the more that we do this, the more we make it it's so complicated for people to even... The more that we say, oh, we shouldn't be eating bread and potato and cow's milk. You can eat bread and cow's milk and blue cheese and all these things and be really healthy. So the fact that we're removing those before we're even getting to the base levels of people being able to afford a healthy diet, you know, food bank usage is up more than it hasn't, has been in the last 15 years. That shouldn't be going up, it should be going down as we learn more about Mm. the the reasons for people accessing them. So I think we're getting so far away in how we're talking about healthy diet in the media that we can't even begin to address the quite basic issues of how everyone can have access to a healthy diet. A healthy diet can be a ham sandwich and an apple at lunch. How have we got to the point where that's now quinoa and avocado? We're just always moving the goalposts too far Mm. to even even address it for the majority. It
1: almost feels sometimes, oh, this is how I personally feel uh, as a woman living in the world that you have explored in this book. It does feel like we've been tricked into this mindset of thinking that if things aren't difficult or if we're not struggling with our choices at all times, that we're not trying hard enough. We're not living life to its full capacity if we're if we're just kind of cruising through. I was thinking this today actually that um I've started taking CBD oil for anxiety and I find it very helpful. And I had this moment the other day where I thought, "But should I be taking it every day? Is it is it okay for me to spend every day feeling calm and at ease? Am I or am I <laughs> should I somehow just be rationing it out so that 6 days of the week I feel incredibly on edge?" and and prone to anxiety and as if I'm not moving fast enough in the world around me and then I can have a day off that is ludicrous and yet somehow (laughs) I've absorbed this idea that it's cheating if I feel good
0: I really want to try CBD oil actually and I'm Interested and pleased to hear that you thought it had a really positive impact on anxiety. That's that's galvanised me to go away and try it. I think one of the things that is quite interesting about what you were saying about how we don't feel like things should just be um, easy or chill is that a lot of the inven- a lot of the inventions of the past ten years and part of this on-demand society that we live in is that we're leading increasingly friction-free. Existences. So you can order a takeaway rather than going out for dinner. You can order an Uber rather than hailing a taxi. You can read a book on your Kindle. You can watch a movie on Netflix. We're removing the kind of time and brain power taken to access these things. And so as we're leading increasingly friction free lives, I think we are either becoming aware or making other parts of our life more difficult. Because ultimately, we've always been working towards making life easier. And now we've got to a point where it could not be easier to access these little luxuries. And so everything else is becoming more difficult. So in ways I look at that, like we've made life more difficult is instead of thinking, oh, there's a movie on Netflix I could watch, or great, there's a podcast I can listen to free on my f- for free on my phone. We're feeling like, I have to watch that box set. I have to read this book. I have to watch that political news show. I have to listen to this podcast. I have to be fully informed at all times. I then have to do my job. I have to be a mother 150% of the time rather than like 90% of the time. I then have to parlay all of that onto social media. And this is just subconsciously being fed to us so that if you opt out of any of those, you are again considered the exception. So when my book came out, I had loads of people asking me, which I really didn't think I would, and I did not think it's the most interesting part of the book or me at all. Why, you know, about my social media boundaries? Like it's quite radical that I only downloaded Instagram once a week, or, you know, it. Why did I make these decisions? And I, I simply made those decisions because you only have so much time in the day. It's the same reason that I don't exercise at the moment because, you know, my my attention is elsewhere. But when anyone kind of abstains from part of the system, it's considered an incredible mark of resilience or very radical rather than the, the true fact just being there are only so many balls we can keep juggling at the same time before we burn out, which most people anecdotally feel like they have done
1: recently. I was intrigued when I, it's funny that you mentioned that because I was fascinated and intrigued when I read about you know, the social and I read about it in a number of different interviews with you, so obviously, I'm picking that up as a reader as well that this is this is something that's clearly on people's minds. i wasn't I wasn't going to ask you about it, but <laughs> but I but now that you've mentioned it, I will say that I was fascinated by it. and I think one of the things that people might be intrigued by is not just how do you resist it, but generally speaking, there seems to be a sense that to be a successful woman operating in pop culture and media in today's world, you must make yourself completely accessible to everyone at all times. And, in fact, you have something in... Um, I think it's in the chapter on Get the Look. I'll just just go to one of my notes. Excuse me. Um, oh, no, it's, it's... It was when you were talking about someone's Instagram account and uh, Holly Willoughby... So yes. when she was not, so Holly Willoughby is a TV presenter in the UK and she's in the habit of uploading her, her outfit to Instagram once a day. And I think you mentioned that when she wasn't doing that or if she didn't do that, people feel not just annoyed that they can't see Holly's outfit that day, but somehow like she's she's let them down in some way because they are owed that outfit. They She owes it to them. So I feel like that's one of the things that, interests me about and i'm almost envious actually that you've that you have this these boundaries around your social media because it does this pressure to be accessible and relatable you talk about the you know the ways in which we we talk about relatability which really just means likability which with women especially means making yourself constantly likable because otherwise you'll be ripped off of the pedestal these are all enormous pressures i think that a lot of women struggle with. And I, I thought that a lot reading your chapter, you know, Get the Look, about what kind of life is it that you do, do you want people to think that you're living or what, what life do you want to assume when you place, when you, you know, drape yourselves not just in these clothes but also you mimic other women, you mimic the, life, the lives that you're seeing out there in order to get some of it for yourself.
0: I think with social media and how often you're on it and how much you engage with it, I think you have to, I think it's just really simple in that you have to look at the kind of person you are and what benefits you. And as someone that suffers from anxiety quite badly, and also the last few years have had probably more work than I have necessarily had time to do. And also I've had two babies in the last two years. I had to look at how I was spending my time and how I was, what was making me not the best version of myself, but the sanest version where I was able to do my work and I was able to parent my children. And that has become a massive shift for me in the, in the past few years is I I don't necessarily get comparisonitis so much when I look at Instagram because I lead quite a quiet different life with young children anyway it's not like I'm out and about a lot but what I found is I get very overwhelmed by lots of different lives so logging on before breakfast and seeing what 50 different people are doing that day or wearing that day or their opinions on things that was too for my brain to hold and it was making it feel crowded before the good stuff and the important stuff even came in so it was a really practical decision that Mm. i don't want to feel overwhelmed all the time that is not a comfortable state for me i do agree that when you were when you are a journalist you do need to have i don't think you necessarily need to be accessible actually because there are plenty of really successful women who don't use social media and i think the resistance probably adds to their intrigue. Um, But I do think that you need to be tapped in a little bit to know what's going on. But you can still be up to date by checking that a few times a week. You know, you go in and okay, you're going to miss some stories, some Instagram stories or some tweets. But if, if trends are big enough, They always are multiplied. They're always replicated. So in that time that I have been on social media a lot less, I haven't noticed that I'm behind at all. There are very few things. And if I am, that tends to be more my age. That's because I'm (laughs) 33, not 16. So I don't know the slang or I don't know what's going on on TikTok. And I'm okay with that. I think, you know, as your work changes, it doesn't... I don't necessarily need to be on social media the way I was before. And if my work demanded that of me, I think I would probably try and change the work I was doing because it's just not a space I want to be in. And in truth, and I, and I always want to be careful here because there is a moral quality ascribed to people who don't use social media a lot. So it tends to be seen as quite snobby or people think I'm advocating a detox, which I'm not because that just encourages binge or purge. I think, in the most straightforward sense, you need to look at social media as a tool that works for you. So diversify your feeds so that you're following people that make you feel engaged, not stressed. Think of times in the day when it's good for you to check Instagram and Twitter rather than this be it being this rolling slideshow to your day. You know, it's always playing in the back of your brain. However, if you're someone that this gives you no anxiety and you don't find it eating into your time, then be on it as much as you want. My husband's on social media tons every day doesn't make him feel bad, doesn't make him panic about the time he hasn't spent doing other things. You know, it's a very individual thing. But I have noticed that there is perhaps a reluctance or not so much of an awareness that we can choose our levels of engagement. Mm.
1: Uh, One of the things that I really enjoy about your work, not just with this book but your work in general, is that you do come to these ideas with... uh, with an appreciation for and a swag of your own nuance and complexities and I think that that is quite often absent in uh, sort of particularly feminist dialogue um, and you do talk about cancel culture in the book which I, I found personally a very rewarding chapter to read because I think that maybe as well as I've gotten older that dogmatic approach that I took in my early 20s where things are just all or nothing and you have such a clear set of moral boundaries in your own head and yet certainly in my case lacked the life experience and the knowledge to really appreciate how complicated things can be um and I, I I liked thinking about that alongside your chapter about the flattening of the woman And how women are flattened into these, you know, you you open the chapter by talking about becoming a mother and the ways in which women are flattened in that role and uh, demonised but also denied complexity. And that's really what it came down to for me reading that chapter is that this insistence that society has on flattening women into these uh, very one-dimensional roles denies us the complexity that we all have. And... Particularly as you and I both are mothers, being able to speak about things that aren't just motherhood I think is still is still quite challenging for a lot of people. You become a mother and then that's what you are. That's, your, that's the poster that you fit into today.
0: The motherhood one I find particularly interesting of all of the paper dolls because mothers are patronised and deified at the yeah. same time. So politically and intellectually, you're kind of cast off slightly. You know, I use the example of like, go sit in a corner with your big leaky boobs. Mm -hmm. But morally and culturally, you are the most important person in the room. You know, mothers are fertile and bountiful and selfless and put upon. And all of these ways in which we see mothers perhaps being represented in a way that women without children of when when you get to a certain age i suppose anything from late 20s onwards women without children either by choice or not by choice are not given the same kind of care of society and i think that's a really complicated place for mothers to be in to be the most important and the least important person in the room and also to be seen as this communal entity and in a way more and more I understand that more so when I wrote the book now I have two children I feel more sometimes a sense of relief being with other mothers of young children where we can talk about the particularly unique pressures and the push and pull you know you want to be seen as someone with so much more than your children and as soon as you're in that space all you crave is to be seen as a mother with your children or not seen but to feel Mm. so I enjoy that but a lot of the time I want to be talking about other things and often I find I have more in common with women who don't have children than do just by dint of what we're interested in what we Passionate about what we're enjoying in popular culture. So, this idea that you are one thing or another as a mother, like I I haven't, I am still trying to navigate my role. And I thought I had done so much of the work before I had my son, and then I had all the same crises again after he was born. And I think the truth is, is if you're anyone that puts quite a lot of thought into the life you're living or the place you're occupying in the world, I don't think you ever stop trying to navigate your identity as a mother, but also as a woman. But what I was trying to get at with that flattening chapter is that it is so easy, and I have, I see myself doing it, but I also see the people around me I love doing it a lot, is that a woman becomes defined by one of her primary attributes. Uh, and that can be racial, that can be sexual, that can be biological it could be physical you know a woman with a massive pair of boobs is your friend with the massive boobs or your, cowork- your co-worker with the huge tits or your friend's wife with the massive rack you know we we do these things without thinking in a way that we don't really do about men you don't really hear people being like oh he's the bald one or he's the guy with the slight paunch it, it, it just doesn't really happen. And in the way that women are sold to as well, we are encouraged to see ourselves as a type of woman so that we can join a certain tribe of consumerism. We can shop in a certain way. And I think maybe one of the strangest things i found, which I was quite naive to about my book coming out, is other people trying to put me in a box. Mm. And it is deeply uncomfortable and I... But I arrived at the point, although I have this has to be reinforced every day of you can't do anything about what other people think of you. All you can do is stay focused on who you and the people who know and love you think you are, Mm. because the story that you're telling yourself about the life you lead is actually greatly outnumbered by the story that other people are telling about your life. And I don't mean as someone that's, you know, a journalist or someone that's in the public eye I just mean that when you walk down the street saying to yourself who you are no one else is telling that story about you they've all got their own version of you whether it's the guy in the coffee shop that you see a couple of times a week or it's your mother like everyone has different ideas of who you are Mm. and that is a terrifying thought but hopefully a comforting one as well Mm. there is no real you there is no fixed you Mm. there is no authentic self Mm.
1: It was funny that you mentioned um, your husband earlier and his social media use and then you you just said that men don't get sort of stereotyped in these ways or flattened in these particular ways. And I did think it's probably a lot easier for your husband to spend hours a day on social media and come away not feeling bad about himself because the, the, the dynamic of the social media space for men is so different to that for women and precisely because men are not flattened in these same particular ways. I'm really curious to know, uh, because like you, I went back to work after I had my first baby. In fact, my book came out seven weeks after he was born and I went on. Well, it's funny. It's funny that you have that reaction because a lot of people say, oh, how on earth did you manage? I would never have been able to do that. And of course you would absolutely be able to do that because you just do what needs to be done. But I remember thinking at the time, firstly, it was a lot easier to go on a national book tour with a seven-week-old baby than it would ever be to do that with a toddler, as I'm sure you also <laughs> appreciate. So it it was just kind of like having some, you know, this warm little creature that I took with me. But I had the privilege, and I recognise it as being a great privilege, particularly because of the kind of thing that my... Book was about. No one was going to say to the feminist author, sorry, you can't bring your baby on stage and breastfeed him (laughs) through this event. It was just not going to happen. Um, So I reflect actually a lot on that, and I'd be interested in your opinion of this too. I feel like a lot of the ways in which I was supported to mother in those first few months, as difficult as it was, because of course it's difficult, it it indicated to me that. If we had this reverence, we pretend that we revere mothers, but what we do is, we it's a, it's a pretense in order to funnel women or people who can have children to funnel them into that direction. So, you know, women who don't have babies or who can't have babies are then fixed with this sort of terrible um, performative sympathy. Oh, I'm so sorry, as if somehow not having children has denied them an essential component of being a human in this world, like Catlin Moran writing that women are only considered to be full human beings until at the moment that they've passed another human being into the world. That's when we graduate to full human status. And because I had the opportunity to go on with my work, to to continue to be to be paid and to be supported while I was doing it, and also to sit on stages in front of people and use my brain in a way that, new mothers are almost entirely not supported to do. I feel like I had a very different experience of motherhood and a, a very different endorsement of what it was I was capable of. And it indicated to me that if we actually revered mothers the way that we say that we do, we would provide all of these structural and financial support systems in place for them to have children and continue on with every intellectual pursuit that they have or everything that makes them that complex, nuanced human being and it, rather than just reducing them to, well, this is a mother now and this is her over in the corner with her leaky boobs?
0: I don't think we do with bear mothers the way we say we do because otherwise so many things that happen wouldn't mm. happen. A friend of mine is just me being made redundant whilst on her maternity leave and I said, you know, are you okay? And she said, I'm fine because if a company can make, Mother with a four-month-old baby redundant on their maternity leave, then I don't think it was the right place for me. And I think it's good I got out now on my maternity leave when I can take a redundancy package and I can have the time to look for a new job. And that is not a single story. I know so many women in the media who, on going back to their job after a maternity leave, were told that their job would look radically different or it would be a job share or there wouldn't be a demotion in terms of money, because we know that's legal, but it would be very clear there was a demotion, not necessarily even demotion in terms of title, but there would be a demotion, a subtle demotion that would be felt across all areas of her work, because they knew that she'd need to leave at five o'clock to pick up her kid from daycare. She wouldn't be able to go to things in the evening. So we hear here, what you're saying, as a freelance woman, we have, it's not so black and white for us. We don't have a paid year off where we can just, fully be in the baby bubble and then you go back to no babies this is work you but I wonder if I would have fared a bit better with having clear lines because I actually don't like I've never taken my children to a work meeting I I think this is something about my the way I you know my brain works I find it Way too difficult to be a mothering self and a work self Mm. in the same room. I have to separate those things out. And I know that that is a privilege, but I would rather be working at midnight than I would be working in day hours with my child. I mean, I have childcare, so that's not something Mm. that I have to juggle each day. But mentally, I find the juggle so difficult. You know, even working in here on the podcast, talking to you, I could hear my toddler crying for me. Oh, no, I I keep seeing your, your,
1: I recognise that that mother thing, you know,
0: turning to see where the noise is coming from. I find that having a physical proximity to my children very difficult when I'm trying to be in a workspace. So I actually really do try and carve out separate identities for myself. But that's also really, really difficult. Yeah. Um, I I wish I'd had more time to turn my brain off. I think that birth and having a child is so mentally exhausting that for a lot of women, it sounds like you really benefited from using your brain, but for a lot of women, it's so difficult even stringing a sentence together that it's good just to have that kind of cognitive and psychological rest. And I think not doing that, um, really took its toll on me actually. And I'm still kind of trying to find my way back slightly from that with my son uh, because I was on a book deadline when he was newborn and trying to make my brain work in the same way was so much harder for me. I know not for everyone, but for me, I did find it really, really difficult. Um, So now I'm trying to do like less brainy work (laughs) just for a bit. (laughs) Well, releasing a book and
1: touring it obviously is a good start.
0: Well, luckily, I haven't had to go anywhere because uh, we (laughs) Global pandemic. (laughs) What was your favourite
1: part of the book to write? If that's not too broad a question.
0: I think my favourite essay to write was probably Get the Look because it was the first and it went through the most revisions. And I really liked the way, well, I felt it challenged, although interestingly, if people didn't like the book, the way they would dismiss it was to say, oh, it's about Zara dresses and expensive handbags. But I like the way I hoped I was challenging in that chapter that um, fashion or faster than fast fashion is just for a certain type of woman. Mm. Um, I wanted to look at the psychology of um, clothes shopping and the how that that's changed over the course of the last kind of 50 years. And I wanted to do it in a way that... I felt would resonate way beyond just writing about fashion. And I feel like I did do that in that chapter. So that's probably the one I'm most proud of writing and enjoyed writing the most because it wasn't something that I had seen other people do. It it really kind of drew on my previous uh, expertise as a fashion editor. And then hopefully, so I had that kind of in that Mm. maybe a lot of people writing about fashion don't necessarily have and I also you know I don't I don't think less of anyone the way they shop or don't shop I really don't believe in these moral ideas we have so I think that maybe left me able to write about it in a way that hopefully didn't seem um unkind Mm. I don't want I don't want to write I never want my writing to be unkind or snide it's it's easy to write like that but it's not a pleasure to read i don't enjoy writing reading writing like that
1: mm. actually get the look was one of my favorite essays to read as well because i i'm not not only am i a consumer of fast fashion as i said i'm very susceptible to wanting the life that i see reflected to me so it it forced me of course. to well it forced me to ask myself to challenge myself and obviously it, you know, being challenged by writing is is one of the primary enjoyments of reading. Um, but it it doesn't surprise me, actually, to hear that people dismissed it... ...or the people who wanted to dismiss the book dismissed it on the basis of... ...well, she just writes about fashion. Because, of course, anything that women predominantly are associated with being interested in... ...or with being driving forces behind in terms of the marketplace... ...is just dismissed out of hand as irrelevant, you know. I always think in terms of, um, like, boy bands. Boy bands being dismissed as ridiculous because just teenage girls like them. And, of course, teenage girls have no taste in anything... ...despite being the tastemakers and despite being the one demographic... ...that industries look to, to uh, to know what's, what's going to be trending next... And I always think it's so funny because the Beatles is widely recognised as being one of the most amazing bands in the world and such, so important to the history of music. But that's because men decided at some point that they liked the Beatles. But the Beatles were made by teenage girls. So it's, it's interesting to me, although not surprising, that one of the ways people are seeking to dismiss you is on the basis of, well, it's just it's superficial or whatever. I did, it didn't read to me as at all superficial,
0: That's always the way in which we find it easy to dismiss women. You know, my past as a fashion writer will always be used as the reason for why I'm not equipped to analyse if people are looking for a reason to do that. And, I mean, there's, you know, that's one of eight essays in the book and none of the other essays are about fashion. There's as much about um, empathy or communication or sensitivity as there is. About fashion, and I'd actually probably say that the essay that would be most useful to people right now would be The Raw Nerve, which talks all about the danger of kind of being binary and Mm. tribalism and the way that we communicate with each other on the internet and how that's seeping offline into culture. I think, with everything going on politically right now, that would probably be the most useful essay. Mm.
1: You, I read in an interview that you said this is along this same theme, you said, my next project will hopefully further cement me as the kind of writer and thinker that I would like to be. You strike me as the kind of thinker and writer who is always looking to grow and be challenged uh, in, by, by the work that you read and the things that you consume and the knowledge, you're a knowledge seeker and you, you work well to pass that knowledge onto others what does take your fancy next
0: I'm trying to think what interview I said that in because I a don't remember saying it and b I don't have a project that that aligns with <laughs> I have no idea what I was referring to about cementing myself um, I I'm not really sure actually I'm juggling certain ideas but I've decided not to make any decisions big kind of big decisions for the rest of 2020 um just because I was feeling a bit exhausted by um work from earlier this year so I'm kind of trying to sit in the waiting room of work which is not something I'm really used to doing I'm always on to the next thing so um I have no I have no idea if what I will do next will cement me as the writing thinker (laughs) I think I am that isn't like what interview did I say that? God, that is so pretentious. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I can take so it I out have if you very like. <laughs> but I but I, but I definitely would um I definitely would say that I am really curious and that I am very happy to um, say that I was wrong about something and learn more about it. I I yeah I love to kind of change change things up and and grow as I go along and also I think it's I think it's natural you know I think I'm 33 so the work that I was doing 10 years ago I'll have hopefully learned and changed direction in 10 years um otherwise that doesn't really show much growth so I don't know in answer to your question (laughs)
1: I'm sorry to have sprung that on you I I appreciate that people like read things back to that you back to you that you've said or that you've written and you're like god i've got no idea where that came <laughs> from and I, if i if i could rephrase it now i would um but it it appealed to me that particular quote on the basis of i think i'd read i think in the same interview perhaps you'd mentioned people uh Um, not dismissing you but reducing you to this concept of just a fashion writer and I think that that is one of the ways in which it's so easy to dismiss women who are working as journalists in spaces that are assumed to be of little value to people the way that fashion is. Um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to speak carefully because I don't think this but I'm trying to nail a sexist rhetoric that I think is applied to women who are working as journalists. And I I can appreciate that sense of wanting to be unflattened, I suppose.
0: Totally. And and I mean I was very aware of that, which is why I I left my fashion editor job, I think, three and a half years ago. And I haven't written or You know, worked with any fashion brands um, in a kind of styling sense for two years. And that was quite deliberate because I knew I was writing the book and um, the Hilo doesn't have any fashion on it. I, I didn't want to never write about fashion again, but I wanted to try new things. And I knew in order for those things to have a chance of getting breathing space, I needed to completely extinguish the flame of fashion for a while. I wish we didn't have to be that dramatic um I don't think those things as I don't think those things can't coexist but I knew that that would happen and so I took a very deliberate break from what I used to do and also because I I wouldn't want I don't want to be a fashion writer now that's not I'm still interested in aspects of fashion but that you know I changed up my job because it was right for me but I yeah I was definitely aware of of that rhetoric and it it even if I never wrote about fashion again I would still yeah be a fashion writer to some or or when people really think I have nothing interesting to say I'm an Instagrammer <laughs> <laughs> uh well just before we wrap up when you
1: release a book out into the world and you realise that it's touched people in particular ways, there are there are always one or two things or one or two moments from a reader that stays with you. So what are, if it's not too personal to ask, what are some of the things that you've heard from readers that have made you feel that sense of pride and warmth in what it is that you've created?
0: Oh, my goodness. Um I'm trying to think about things I've been tagged in when people have shared bits of writing that they love. And I can't really think. I think um, bits that lots of people have mentioned to me are the way in which we use communication. So looking forward to hearing back that chapter about how kind of email inboxes have begun to rule our lives. And Mm. so kind of my encouragement for us to what we were saying earlier get the tools to work for us rather than the other way around and quite a lot of people have highlighted the passages on empathy and the limitations of how many things we can distill ourselves into Um, and the bits on flattening women and how we can kind of find a full self amongst the fragments, but you've made me, I don't know, you may want to go and see the passages I've been tagged in. I should really be making note of when people do actually, because it's, yeah, that would be a really nice thing to hold on to.
1: In the the chapter that you wrote about, um, let me get back to you, let me get back to is that what it's
0: called? Uh, looking looking forward, forward to hearing, hearing back. back. Sorry, I've
1: got a lot that of... passive
0: aggressive sign off.
1: A lot of tags and folded over pages in that one as well. I felt weirdly very... Um, comforted you have a, a little paragraph in there where you talk about when you're dating someone and whatsapp ha- whatsapp has all of these little tools in there to let you know when they've last been online if they're online currently when they last saw your messages and you talk about a friend who was dating someone and recently spent an entire weekend with her eyes trained on the online status of a man she was seeing taunting herself with the knowledge that he was writing there constantly just not to her and i read that and i thought oh, I know exactly what that feels like, but I feel incredibly comforted that I'm not the only woman who does it.
0: I mean, all of these things are designed to keep you hooked. The ellipses, you know, I don't know if you've watched the social dilemma on Netflix. Uh, I just watched that and they're talking about the ellipses, how that dot, dot, dot of somebody typing keeps you there waiting for the response. So, you know, it encourages that instant communication Mm. so that when you don't hear back from someone straight away, it then becomes an issue in a way that it never would have had we not been trained into this idea of instant messaging. Mm. That's all that I have time for, although I could speak to you about this book for a lot longer.
1: Um, thank you so much, Pandora thank for joining so me Pandora. today. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. The book is called "How Do We Know We're doing it Right: Essays on Modern Life And it is available now through all good bookstores. Please shop Independent if you can. Pandora, what what can I say other than thank you?
0: thank you so much I'm a massive fan of your book so it's oh thank really you. To meet
1: you thank you so much uh, I shall let you get back to your children now and I appreciate you and I'm glad that you're in the world thank you thank you you've been listening to the big sister hotline a weekly advice podcast that delivers no-nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back, your big sisters. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you look for great content. And you can also listen to all the back episodes. If you like the show, then please do consider rating and reviewing it. It's not only really nice to have the feedback, but it also helps to promote the show to other listeners. If you enjoy the hotline, you can also support the ongoing making of it at my Patreon, which is www.patreon.com forward slash Clementine Ford, where pledges are more than ten dollars per month receive access to a bonus monthly episode of the hotline only available for download to subscribers if you have a question you'd like answered you can submit it to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com and don't worry all submissions are treated as totally anonymous we big sisters we've got your back Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode, and I will see you next week. Remember, there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist, especially now that it has to be over Zoom. So contact us instead. The Big Sister Hotline. The phone lines are open.